Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on ETFs and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, Global Market Strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Max Kahn, Head of Institutional ETFs for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. I'm happy to be here. So there's a lot that's been going on in markets and the economy more broadly, particularly over the past couple of months. We did see a fairly significant downshift in the overall pace of economic activity during the third quarter. When we think about what happened here, there were really two things that we believe were at play. First, it does appear to us that the increase in inflation and spread of the Delta variant did, in fact, undermine both consumer confidence and as well consumption, leading again to that downshift in the overall pace of economic activity. The other thing that we saw transpire was obviously a fairly significant slowdown in the pace of economic growth over in China. And when we look at what's happened here, we very much believe that this is a pause rather than the beginning of a broader pullback. And frankly, we see reasons why economic growth should reaccelerate as we look ahead to the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. There are effectively two things that we think are going to drive this reacceleration going forward. The first is simply the fact that inflation seems to be coming off the boil. Delta slowly but surely seems to be fading into the background. We do believe that that will lead to an improvement in consumer sentiment and subsequently a reacceleration in the underlying pace of consumption. The other thing that we think is going to happen, which will boost economic growth, is more on the manufacturing and the good side of the economy. For anybody who's tried to order something over the past couple of months, whether it be for a home renovation, maybe an upcoming birthday, they've probably found that inventories are tremendously constrained. And the reality of the situation is that we've been drawing down inventories for the better part of the past 12 months, and we are now at a point where they need to be rebuilt. And so the combination of this inventory restocking and reacceleration in consumption, again, we do think will allow the clouds to break over the global economy as we look ahead to 2022. Now, meanwhile, we have both fiscal and monetary policy working in our favor in the current environment. We do expect not one, but two infrastructure packages to be delivered before the end of the year. We believe that the debt ceiling will be dealt with for no reason other than neither the Democrats nor the Republicans want to go into a midterm election year looking like they're responsible for something silly happening down in Washington, D.C. And while we do expect taxes to increase to help pay for these infrastructure packages, we don't necessarily believe that taxes will increase enough to derail the broader economic recovery. On the monetary side of things, the outlook for the Fed has been complicated by what's been going on with inflation. Inflation is obviously becoming a bit stickier than I think a lot of people had originally expected. And against that backdrop, you are seeing a clear signal from the Fed that they are beginning to think about moving towards the exit. Now, we think tapering is very different from tightening. We would not be surprised to see a tapering announcement sometime here in the next couple of weeks, likely at the November meeting. Tapering could well begin before the end of 2021. But I'm not so sure that the Fed is going to be able to start hiking rates in late 2022, as they've laid out in their current set of forecasts, suggesting to me that although asset purchases look set to be reduced, the underlying state of monetary policy is not yet transitioning 
to outright tightening. And so you have this global economy that's coming back online. You have fiscal and monetary policy that are providing a bit of a tailwind for the economy overall. And frankly, from a portfolio perspective, that leaves us very comfortable continuing to embrace risk within the context of, again, a balanced and diversified portfolio. And over the years, we've seen a pretty significant increase in the number of tools that investors have at their disposal to realize these investment themes in portfolios and express these investment themes in portfolios as well. And obviously, exchange-traded funds, ETFs, have been a big part of that growth, particularly for retail and institutional investors. And so, Max, we'd love to bring you into the conversation at this point, kind of given that state of play with respect to the global economy. Everybody's talking about ETFs. Everybody's been talking about ETFs. Let's take a step back and maybe spend a few minutes here just walking through the evolution that we've seen in the ETF market over the course of the past couple of years. Yeah, sure, David. I'm happy to. And as you note, I don't think it would be a surprise at this point to hear that the ETF market has been growing, even growing rapidly. But if you dig in a bit, it's really remarkable to see how fast it's growing and also how quickly it's evolving. So currently sitting at around $7 trillion, at least in the U.S., in terms of total AUM across the ETF industry. ETFs have brought in already over $650 billion this year, far exceeding that of any previous year on record. In looking back further, there hasn't been a five-year period where ETF AUM hasn't doubled. So if you then project that forward, some experts see the ETF industry hitting $15 trillion by 2025. So again, doubling over the seven that it's currently sitting at. What's really exciting to me, though, is if you look under the hood a bit, the product mix is vastly different than it was even five years ago, providing additional tools to your earlier comments for both retail and institutional investors alike to put to use. One thing we need to do, though, is to break the perception that the ETF industry is synonymous with passive, as non-market cap-weighted ETFs have been around now for two decades. Similarly, active ETFs have now been in market for almost 15 years. You can now find ETFs covering just about every asset class, right? Equities, fixed income, commodities, so on and so forth, in every style. Passive, factor-based, enhanced beta, inactive. The rise of active ETFs in particular, really over the past couple of years, is very exciting to me. Asset managers such as JP Morgan and the like are launching and converting in some cases some of their most successful strategies and therefore providing access to their most tenured investors in the ETF wrapper. As a result, and again, looking at the complexion or looking at the makeup of the ETF industry, while still only 4% of the current U.S. ETF market, active ETFs have contributed to roughly 12% of the last 12-month flow. If you project this out again, active ETFs could be a $1.8 trillion market by 2025. And many of these active ETFs are already just as liquid as their passive counterparts and not necessarily priced at a premium. Think about the impact of that to portfolios, right? And again, to your comments, as investors need to become more nimble to take advantage and be prepared for these ever-changing markets. The combination of all the best attributes of the ETF wrapper combined with the deep resources and track record of some of the best investors. Institutions have already taken note and started to purchase active ETFs where they might have previously gone with active product in the past. Finally, in terms of the evolution of the market, we're seeing thematic and ESG ETFs start to take off as well. Some of which, by the way, with early support from institutional investors. And we absolutely expect this trend to continue. In closing, there's a whole array of ETFs now across all asset classes spanning broad and specific objectives 
that we expect institutions to continue to take advantage of going forward. That's very helpful. So clearly tremendous growth, not only in the amount of dollars that are being funneled into the ETF world, tremendous growth in the types of ETFs that are available, moving away from those market cap weighted strategies. You mentioned active ETFs, you mentioned thematic ETFs. And we recognize, right, we hear it in client conversations that in a lot of cases, the ETF wrappers is preferable to some of the other vehicles that are broadly available in the market. And so we get a lot of institutional investors tuning in to this podcast. We'd love to get your thoughts around how institutions should think about using ETFs specifically within the context of their portfolios. Yeah, and I'm happy to. And similar to how we have to break the perception that ETFs are passive, we also do have to, to some regard, break the perception that ETFs are just a retail vehicle. Institutions have long been active in ETFs, long leveraged ETFs as a tool in their toolbox. The ease of implementation, transparency, liquidity, to your note on just the additional benefits of ETFs. And now, though, the sheer number of exposures offered all help investors better manage exposures, either during times of transitions or in rebalances, to keep necessary liquidity in their portfolio without impacting performance, to gain access to new asset classes, so on and so forth. Before I dig a little deeper, though, I will say, for those who aren't familiar or those who haven't used ETFs, they really should consider the ease and implementation of implementing an ETF program, again, as another tool in that toolbox to meet the ever more difficult return environments and economic and just market environments. We will, again, get into some specific use cases, though I will say, again, for those who haven't traded ETFs in the past, it's not as daunting as some might think. Actually, it's quite often a seamless process. So I'd encourage those who haven't to reach out to their custodian or directly to an ETF issuer to help walk through the benefits and dig deeper into some of the use cases that I'll present in just a moment. We actually did publish a quick primer on some considerations that institutions consider as they're building out an ETF program that you can find on our website. But with regard to that historic institutional use of ETFs and thinking about some traditional use cases, you know, they can really be boiled down to maybe four or five categories some of which I've already mentioned, using ETFs and transitions, using ETFs for tactical adjustments or in-portfolio completion, using ETFs for smaller account solutions, and also for liquidity management. Now, digging in a bit, historically, ETFs have been used in transitions, right, as a transition management vehicle, as a way to minimize any unnecessary or unintended cash in the portfolio, which can ultimately lead to slippage, right, or drag on performance, whether the institution has a new manager or exposure already selected, or if they're just beginning the process, ETFs can provide a really efficient way to maintain that exposure without having to move to cash. Even if it would just be a matter of a day or two, those cash positions, unintended cash positions, can result in additional tracking error or potential drag to the performance of their portfolio. ETFs can also just make for a more efficient transfer vehicle as ETFs at times can be used to actually fund a new manager, to fund a new account, limiting transaction costs. Perhaps a more exciting use is the use of ETFs tactically. So many plans have used ETFs as a way to maybe unlock a new asset class or as a way to get more active, to get more tactical, as a way to get into a new asset class and better again manage their overall exposure. With the intraday liquidity and ease of implementation, ETFs have empowered some institutions to take advantage of maybe some of the short-term or long-term situations and environments that you've mentioned in your opening. Let's say take advantage of opportunities maybe in a region like emerging markets, in a country like China, or more specifically in EM small cap or getting exposure to the EM consumer 
in stepping back, thinking about even things like factors and thinking about how cheap value has been getting exposure to value ETFs tactically, taking advantage of that historic cheapness. In fixed income, it's been amazing to see how many levers there are now available to investors to pull more effectively or to dial in more effectively duration or credit quality, even beta. One interesting development that we've seen in high yield Institutions have actually been very active in helping to expand the menu of high-yield ETFs for those very reasons. You can now find high and low beta high-yield ETFs. You can find higher quality and lower quality high-yield ETFs, even shorter duration high-yield ETFs that have more effectively allowed fixed income teams within institutions to tactically dial up or down duration, risk, so on and so forth in their high-yield exposure, just as one example. While many of the use cases are in that shorter term space, the use isn't limited there. We have seen institutions find more strategic uses for ETFs. Many of the larger institutions that we work with have smaller pools of assets. Maybe it's a pension that controls a smaller endowment or an insurance company that has a small foundation associated with it, or just a combination of smaller pools of assets that historically the plan would want to gain exposure to the same vehicles or asset classes that they can in the larger account. But just by the nature of the smaller pool of assets, they may not therefore meet minimums or the allocations might just be too small to put to work in a traditional manager or traditional vehicle. Given the proliferation of product development in the deeply expanded menu of ETFs, institutions can now build robust multi-asset portfolios that closely mimic the overall plan even possibly incorporating some of the active managers that are now available in the ETF wrapper that they may have access to historically in their larger plan. Zooming in a bit, ETFs can also be used in portfolio strategic, though, portfolio completion as a strategic asset allocation tool or for a strategic allocation to smaller or more lightly represented asset classes. And maybe even thinking about breaking equity allocations further into smaller or underrepresented countries or regions or building strategic exposures to things like ESG or thematic strategies that are important to the constituents of the plan. Finally, ETFs will long and have long been used for liquidity management. This may be one of the most compelling use cases for ETFs, particularly in fixed income. Starting by zooming out, we have seen institutions manage liquidity at the plan or portfolio level, where some institutions have carved out a small portion of their overall assets, say 5%, and manage those assets in a portfolio of equity and fixed income ETFs. There are so many options now, at least in the public markets, where an ETF portfolio, similar to the concept already presented, can closely mimic the overall plan, but be there in the case of redemptions or additions. You know, the ease and value of adding to ETFs will be proven in a short amount of time. Now, zooming in a bit, thinking about managed liquidity or the challenges in managing liquidity in fixed income portfolios, whether or not that be portfolios of individual bonds or portfolios of fixed income managers, that liquidity can be challenging, particularly when flows in and out occur on a regular basis. Keeping a portion of the high yield or EM or even senior loan portfolio in ETFs can make adjustments more efficient than historically having to call a manager or buy or sell hundreds of bonds. Those transactions can now happen at a single ticker level particularly as we look at how well fixed income ETFs have performed during times of stress. That secondary market liquidity that's so important to ETFs has been there, has helped in those times of stress when liquidity is certainly absolutely required. This is tremendously impactful as we think about times like March of last year and also a number of other times in history. Again, during these times of increased or even extreme volatility, liquidity is critical. 
ETFs have shown that they can hold up in these markets, can be a source of that much needed liquidity and be there when you need it most. Finally, one more example of liquidity management can be seen in just the management of cash or liquidity assets. In a yield environment where cash and liquidity instruments are yielding zero or even negative, we have seen interest in extending out and tearing out that cash by either treasury managers, cash managers, and many have looked to ultra-short ETFs as a way to do so. There has to be an understanding of the additional risks associated potentially with extending out beyond cash for those tier two or tier three liquidity assets. However, there can be significant benefits. If you think about the cash that will be on the sidelines for six to nine months, it may make sense to extend a little bit into credit, ultra short duration credit, and in return, achieve an additional 30, 40 basis points in additional yield. In fact, some of the largest active fixed income ETFs are in that ultra short space and are being used for this very reason. That's really helpful. And I think you gave us a lot to think about in terms of the way that institutions are able to use ETFs in their portfolios. We talked about managing exposures tactically and strategically, thinking about the issue of liquidity. The elephant in the room, if you will, is kind of active management. And a lot of the times, as you noted in your opening remarks, when people think of ETFs, they think of passive, they think of market cap weighted. What are some of the ways that you've seen institutions incorporate active management into a passive portfolio using exchange-traded funds? I think that that's something that's on the mind of a lot of our listeners. Absolutely. And in my opening comments, I mentioned this is an area where I'm particularly excited as we think about the evolution and growth of the ETF industry. And also, as we think about the product development efforts around active ETF, it's really, really interesting and really exciting. So as Active ETFs mature and develop, the AUM, and importantly, the average daily volume of the ETFs is increasing, and some are actually becoming nearly as liquid as their passive alternatives. Maybe not in areas like large cap equities or investment grade corporates, but in certainly other areas. As we think about price compression in the market, and certainly one of the advantages of ETFs is their pricing, many of these actively managed ETFs are actually priced competitively with their passive counterparts. Again, maybe not in large cap equities or core fixed income, but certainly in niche sectors or fixed income sectors. As an example, there are actively managed high yield ETFs that are priced at half that of their largest passive peers. Similarly, you can gain access to things like senior loans, actively managed senior loans at the same price as passive. I will note, though, there are various degrees of active, and I can appreciate that highly concentrated active portfolios might not be the best alternative when an institution has historically used passive or otherwise indexed funds. However, there are tracking error aware sensitive strategies or benchmark aware active strategies in the market that can offer the best of both worlds. Some might leverage the insight of the portfolio manager or analyst, say the regional equity or sector specific fixed income portfolio managers, to screen out the names from the index that are likely to default or declare bankruptcy. A tracking error aware active strategy can screen those out while still not taking on large active bets or large tracking error figures. We've also seen active strategies in the objectives-based space, like income-oriented strategies, ESG strategies, thematic strategies, strategies such as call overriding or inflation hedging, or even simply active growth, or ESG carbon transition innovation strategies, all of which, or many of which, can be incorporated as a replacement either for simple passive for the reasons that I mentioned above. Many of them are tracking error constrained. Many of them are priced competitively. Many of them do now have the liquidity necessary. And I think it's important for our clients to understand that at the end of the day, 
ETF doesn't mean passive. And clearly, there are lots of different ways that they can go about being more active, as you pointed out, a very attractive price, and in some cases, half the price of what a comparable strategy would cost. And so we've covered a lot today talking through the evolution of the ETF market, how institutional investors are using ETFs, how they can incorporate active management at a relatively attractive fee. You know, I'd ask for maybe just some quick thoughts on, okay, well, that all is well and good, but where do we go from here? So Max, how do you see this story continuing, not just over the course of the next 12 months, but more broadly over the course of the next couple of years? I firmly believe that ETS will continue to be a powerful solution and a powerful tool for institutions, both in the historic use cases, but also I believe that institutions will continue to find new and innovative ways to leverage ETFs as a way to more thoughtfully manage their exposure or liquidity in their portfolios, even empowering institutions to start making some asset allocation changes themselves or overlay some asset allocation views themselves. Certainly as additional active strategies come to market, particularly again from investors who already have a high degree of familiarity by institutions, we certainly see the active ETF use continuing to grow. You know, again, I can't stress enough the combination of the institutional caliber, best-in-class active managers with all of the traditional benefits of ETFs, particularly when priced competitively. It's a very powerful and very compelling solution for institutions to take advantage of. The more ETFs that reach institutional scale, again, both with regard to traditional passive strategies, but as we break down some of the larger indexes to their component parts, like we've seen in fixed income or like we've seen in equities, As additional ETFs come to scale, the more options and tools institutions will have in their arsenal as a way to meet the new demands of their constituents, of their client base, as a way to meet the additional market or liquidity challenges that come about. ETFs can be a very powerful tool to enable institutions to do those things. And particularly, again, as we think about things like areas like ESG and thematics, constituents, shareholders, investors demand institutions and all investors to become more thoughtful in their exposures. We think that ETFs can certainly play a part in a role in those portfolios. But just to sum it up, I really do believe that we're really just starting to unlock the benefits of ETFs and institutional accounts, helping institutions better be prepared and armed and equipped to meet their objectives. That's awesome. Well, if I had to sum it up, I would say when it comes to the use of ETFs in the institutional investment space, it seems to me like we've only just begun. And so, Max, thanks so much for your time today. Great having you on the podcast. And more importantly, looking forward to having you back sometime soon to continue the conversation and see which of your predictions have shaken out and kind of what you're thinking about the direction of travel more broadly. So thanks again for joining us today. And thank you, David. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Thank you. Recorded on October 15th, 2021. Not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for informational purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. 
This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Latin America, for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be. In Canada, for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 197601586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2021, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved.